following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, this morning, we are continuing our series of studies in the doctrines of grace. Our aim really is to unpack and understand what the Bible teaches concerning our great salvation, our great salvation. Specifically, we are looking at how our triune God accomplishes and applies our redemption. We're interested in surveying how the Father works to save us, how the Son works to save us, and how the Spirit has worked to accomplish our salvation our eternal deliverance from the power and punishment, and yes, eventually, the very presence of sin. We are studying how God saves his people. Last Sunday, we began to consider what the Bible teaches us regarding the state of fallen man. Man as he is descended from Adam and Eve. Man as he proceeds from the womb. Man in what the Bible calls his natural condition, that is, his condition apart from the sovereign, merciful intervention of God. In other words, we are talking about what we were when God found us and when he saved us. We are talking about what we would still be apart from the regenerating grace and life-giving mercy of God. Again, we must never disconnect what we are studying from who we are, right? We're not just talking about sinners out there. We're talking about where we were when he found us, where we were when he saved us, because none of us was born good. None of us us were born righteous. None of us were born with a desire to follow Christ or to look to God for all things, We were born with an inclination to do our own thing, to go our own way, to find our own satisfaction in this life apart from the all-satisfying glory of our Creator. It's only fitting now that in studying the biblical doctrine of salvation that we take the time to understand the objects and the recipients of salvation, that is, those who are being saved by God. If Christ has called us as Christian believers to take this message of the gospel to the nations, the nations in your backyard, the nations across the street, the nations at your school, the nations in your workplace, if he's called us to take the gospel to the nations, then we need to know who and what we are dealing with when we leave this building. You know, when I remember in high school, when we were preparing to go up against uh, another football team. We would spend hours watching and studying films that show the plays and the tendencies and the strengths and the weaknesses of the opposing team so that we knew what we were going up against when we began the game. Well, in a similar way, We need to know what we're going up against as we leave this place, as we go to lunch, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we go about our daily lives with the goal of communicating the gospel, the good news to those around us in hopes that they too will see the glory of this and call upon the name of Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. And as we open our Bibles to study who and what we're dealing with and who and what we were when God found us. It can be both intimidating and invigorating. It can be intimidating because when left to themselves, human beings are helplessly hopeless and hopelessly helpless when it comes to saving themselves or even preparing themselves 
to be saved. But it can also be absolutely invigorating and exciting in that when we're hit with the reality of man's utter helplessness and dire hopelessness as the Bible portrays it, we find ourselves looking up with hope and confidence to God who alone can raise the dead and release the slave and renew the mind and restore the soul. The God who alone can replace the stony hearts of men and women with tender hearts of flesh that beat for him. We know that what a sinner needs more than anything isn't just the turning of a new leaf, isn't just the making of a good decision. More than anything, what the sinner needs is a spiritual resurrection, a divine awakening that only God can bring about. As Jesus taught us in John chapter 5 and verse 21, he said, as the father gives life to the dead and raises the dead, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Some would have us believe that all man needs is a little bit of enlightenment, a little bit of help. And then for that man to be left to himself in order to exercise the powers of his free will and decide to follow Jesus. But as we saw last week in God's word, man has a will and he has the ability to make decisions, but that will along with the rest of man's faculties, conscience, mind, heart, strength, is all under the bondage and power of both sin and Satan, as we're taught in the word of God. It reminds me of a famous sermon preached by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He titled the sermon, Free Will, A Slave. And he accurately stated, quote, Free will I have often heard of, but I have never seen it. I have always met with will and plenty of it but it has either been led captive by sin or held in the blessed bonds of grace. In other words, wills set free by the grace of God. Well, it's all good and well to quote the Prince of Preachers on these matters, but at the end of the day, we must allow the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to have the final word, to have the final say regarding what salvation ultimately rests upon. Does it rest upon the sinner's supposedly free will, which is tied to his spiritually blind and darkened mind, or does it rest upon the mercy and power of God? John 1.13, our memory verse last week, tells us in very clear language that those who are regenerated, those who are born again, those who are born from above, are born again, number one, not of blood. Number two, not of the will of the flesh. Number three, nor of the will of man. In other words, what accomplishes this miraculous miracle of the new birth? It's not our own wills. It's the gracious will of God. Their rebirth, John says, is owing to the will of God. James, our Lord's brother, taught us the same truth. James chapter one and verse 18. In the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth in the exercise of his own will. He brought us forth, a word that speaks of giving birth in the Greek. Well, of course, this is consistent, isn't it, with what Jesus taught in John chapter 6, for example, verse 63, where he said to the Jews who were arguing with him and grumbling at what he was saying about believing in him he said it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all here they are disputing about believing in christ grumbling against the idea of believing in him and you know what he does he puts a nail in the coffin and says it is a spirit who gives life the flesh is of no help at all Friends, can it get any clearer than that? When it comes to regeneration, when it comes to spiritual resurrection, when it comes to divine awakening, when it comes to believing in Christ, after all, that's the context of John 6, Jesus tells us that the flesh is no help at all. In fact, in the original, Jesus uses a double negative in order to emphasize man's 
absolute powerlessness and utter inability. He says the flesh, which is all that man is in his natural fallen state, apart from grace, offers no help at all. None. Double negative. No help. None. And then drawing from this verse, one commentator rightly concluded, neither the logical arguments advanced by the mind, hypnotic powers brought to bear upon the will, touching appeals made to the emotions, beautiful music and hearty singing to catch the ear, nor sensuous trappings to draw the eye, none of these are of the slightest avail in stirring dead sinners. It is not the choir nor the preacher, but the spirit that gives life. That's what Jesus is teaching. And the theologian goes on to say, this is a very distasteful reality to the natural man because it's so humbling. That is why it is completely ignored in the great majority of our modern evangelistic campaigns. What is urgently needed today is not mesmeric experts who have made a study of how to produce a religious atmosphere, nor religious showmen to make people laugh one minute and weep the next, but faithful preaching of God's word with the saints on their faces before God, humbly praying that God may be pleased to send his quickening spirit into their midst. When it comes to spiritual resurrection, when it comes to divine awakening, when it comes to people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, the natural fallen man is absolutely powerless. Paul's words in Romans 9.16 are perhaps the strongest regarding their, the utter impotency of man's will as it relates to salvation. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in a very straightforward manner. He says that salvation, quote, depends not on human will or exertion or effort, but on God who has mercy, close quote. That's the Apostle Paul. Again, we are not denying that man's will is entirely irrelevant. We are not saying that those who have come to Christ have done so against their wills. We are simply saying that in order for that to happen, the sovereign miracle of regeneration must take place first so that the sinner can understand the glory of the gospel and appreciate in the heart the loveliness of Christ and thus call upon his name for salvation. We affirm that if a sinner is willing to come to Christ, if a sinner is willing to trust in Christ in faith and in surrender, that's evidence that God in his initiating grace has already begun to work in them to bring them to that point. Wherever you see faith, know that God has already been at work in them to bring them to that point. At the end of the day, we are saying in this series of studies that God did it all. God did it all. He graciously chose us. He graciously predestined us before time began. He graciously called us. He graciously regenerated us. He graciously granted us faith and repentance. To use the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, the Father graciously drew us to Christ and granted us to come to him. God graciously then justified us, declared us to be righteous. He adopted us. He sealed us with his spirit. And it will be God who sanctifies us and glorifies us with his son in the very end. God does all the work. That's the heart of what we're saying in all of this. When it comes to salvation, either you believe that, number one, you did it all, which is the heretical perspective, because no one in heaven will be saying, salvation belongs to God and to me. Or number two, you believe that God did his part and then you did your part. And thus salvation is the result of almighty God and spiritually dead man cooperating together, which is the perspective of many people today. In theology, this is called synergism. S-Y-N, not S-I-N-N-E-R. Could be that, though. Synergism, because it comes from a Latin word which means working together. Syn, S-Y-N, is together. Right? Synergism, working together. Or you believe what the Bible teaches, that God did it all for the praise of his glorious grace to eliminate 
not only all boasting, but all room for boasting. In theology, we call this monergism. It refers to God working alone. Mono, the prefix, it's alone, working together, working alone. God works alone in the matter to accomplish and apply the work of salvation for the praise of his glorious grace. That's what it boils down to, folks. Either you, you always end these discussions with, the, you know, you always end these theological discussions by saying, yes, but ultimately I, or you joyfully resign and you say, no, to God alone be the glory. If I did anything at all, it was granted to me from above. And that's it. When it comes to mankind and thinking about mankind from a biblical perspective, we should have both a high view of man and a low view of man. We should have a high view of mankind because in spite of how far he has fallen and strayed from God, he still retains an element of dignity because he's been made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. But we should also have a very low view of man in that he has fallen from his original state of innocency. And man is now not neutral with regard to God, but hostile to God, as Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 teach us. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, that is the natural man, descended from Adam, proceeding from the womb, those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Why? Because God is you know, mysteriously, secretly binding them with some unseen force? No, no, the force is within the sinner. And that force is called a love for sin. It's called a love for the darkness. In other words, we do not come to God because we love our sin too much. And until he sovereignly and mercifully intervenes in our lives, we will remain in that state and then be justly condemned because all the sinning that we did, we weren't doing it by some outside force forcing us to sin. We were loving every bit of the way. So his condemnation is just. You might remember Jesus himself uttering these cutting, dividing words in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. There's no neutrality here. Neutrality is a myth when it comes to mankind. The Bible teaches us that there are two classes of human beings. Many countries, many different skin colors, but two classes of human beings. Number one, there are those who are against Christ, those who are hostile to God, those who love the darkness, those who reject the truth, and those who are pro-sin. And within this class, there are many religious people even, even those who claim to worship Christ. They put on, on Sunday mornings, a religious mask. They assemble with religious people. They have everyone fooled except for God because they themselves, behind the scenes, are still slaves of corruption. That's the first class of people. And then there are those who, secondly, although they came from that previous camp, let's never deny that, they have now been delivered by the grace of God. And though they still struggle against sin, they are no longer slaves of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ has set them free. As he says in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. They love God only because God's love has been poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to them. What we're saying is that moral neutrality is an absolute myth. Human beings as descendants of Adam are not neutral, but rather are born with an inclination much like gravity, an inclination towards evil, towards just living content without God. Again, we're not saying that every human being is an Adolf Hitler or an Osama bin Laden or, you know, head member of ISIS. We're not saying that. We're simply saying that we are born with an inclination to always just live life without God, content to live without him, content to not honor him, content to not give him thanks, content to just 
be without him. That's what we're talking about. That's the essence of sin, is just contentment without God. How you do that is, looks a lot different, but sin at the heart of it is just being content without him. Remember everything we looked at last week. For example, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, only evil at all times, he says. If we fail to hold to a low view of man, we will naturally believe that man is capable of more than what the Bible says he's capable of. The world believes this way. The world teaches us you can do what you want to do. And to some extent, that's true. With enough education, with enough willpower, you can you know, set your heart to do something great. We're not denying that. However, when it comes to you being able in and of yourself to raise, your, raise yourself from spiritual deadness to call upon the name of Christ for life, you're no more able than a corpse is rotting in the grave. And sadly, many Christians will lock arms with the world regarding what man is able to do and contribute to his salvation, where the Bible for hundreds of years has been silently screaming the truth that man's condition is utterly desperate, helpless. Paul said, for example, in his letter to the Ephesians, that when they were separated from Christ, they had no hope. They had no hope. That was all of us before Christ. We had no hope. Ephesians 2.12. Sure, we had hopes of college. We had hopes of careers and companionship. We had hopes of getting married and having a family and retiring and traveling the world. We had all kinds of hopes that, from a worldly perspective, are all attainable. That's not what Paul is saying here. He has just mentioned at the beginning of Ephesians 2 that from a spiritual perspective, these believers were once dead in their trespasses and sins. That is, separated from God, unable to do anything for themselves. And now, verse, you know, 11 verses later, he recalls that same season of life when they were dead in sin, and he says, you had no hope. I wonder if that's ever really hit us, that before Christ, we had no hope. You know, it's like a broken down car, you break down the side of the road, and there's always that hope that, that maybe there's just a loose connection somewhere, and so you're, you know, you're stuck, you're abandoned there in the middle of nowhere, and there's that hope that maybe just, you know, in... You know, for me, for my Jeep, you know, hitting the bottom of the, the, the gas tank and, the, and you know, the fuel pump wakes up. It's like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. There was, we, we, there's hope in that. But Paul's saying in a spiritual sense, when we were without Christ, there was no hope. There was no chance of, you know, tapping the bottom of our human gas tank or whatever and something awakening, a spark igniting for love for God and, and, and a love to just want to be with him. We were hopeless. No hope. Without hope. That is, you had no grounds for believing that something spiritually or eternally good might happen from anything in and of yourself. No hope, he says. He didn't say, you were dead in sin and you needed a little bit of help. He said, you were dead and you had no hope. Conclusion, to be spiritually dead is to be spiritually hopeless. We've already seen that there's no help, no hope and no help in the flesh. That is, in man's fallen state as separated from God, separated from the life of God. There's no hope, no help. The biblical picture, friends, of fallen man isn't a pretty one. You know, we were talking about how I was, we went to go pick up dinner last night. And as I was, I was talking to the boys in the, the, the van... Um, I was letting them know that, you know, as you drive around Messia and there's like, you know, little public libraries of, uh, you know, books that people set out there and you take a book and you leave a book and they have some, you know, kind of in the center of town as well. Well, I was letting them know that there's a lady who, who posted one of these, you know, installed one of these libraries of uh, these public libraries at, at the park over off Picacho. 
Um, and it's a Hot Wheels library. And so it's a, it was, at least the day she put it up, it was nice and shiny. You know, there was about three or four rows of nice Hot Wheels cars, Hot Wheels cars for people to come and take. And then I, I can almost guarantee that that thing is either shattered, taken, just the nature of man. Man sees something and takes it, ransacks it for himself. The biblical picture of fallen man isn't a pretty one. And if we unplug ourselves from the Bible, it's only a matter of time that our low view of man will evolve into having a neutral view or even a high view of man and what he is spiritually capable of, which is why it's important for us to meet on a regular basis because when we meet, everything is put into perspective again as we hear the preaching of God's word. Because out there, the world wants us to conform to its image. In here, God wants to conform us to the image and likeness of his son. And so we should never, ever unplug from the truth of God's word regarding who we are and what we used to be and what we would still be apart from the grace of God. Well, this morning, your title of your sermon on your bulletin says, Unconditional Election. Um, Add to that part one. Unconditional election, part one. This is the first. It's kind of just an introduction. I want to just reiterate for you, with the rest of our time together this morning, what we are truly unable to do and how that necessitates God intervening to save us. Okay? So, if you were here last week, we looked at many of the cannots in scripture regarding what we as natural human beings cannot do from a spiritual perspective. As Matthew 12, 34 says, we are unable to speak what God counts as good. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, oh, generation of vipers, which we all were, right? We were children of the devil, as 1 John tells us. How can you, being evil, speak good things? In other words, truly good things, truly God-glorifying things, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? The mouth is connected to the heart. Whatever the, is in the heart, the mouth is going gonna, is gonna to release it. It's going to vent it. If our hearts are wicked, how can we speak truly God-glorifying things with our mouth? The heart has to be changed first by God in order for the mouth to be used to glorify God and not to sin against God. As we saw already in Romans chapter 8, the natural man is unable in and of himself to do what's pleasing to God. Unable to please God because of his love for sin and his enslavement to sin. We saw in Matthew 19, 25, that when the disciples heard these words, they were exceedingly amazed and they said to Jesus, they said, who then can be saved but Jesus beheld them and he said unto them, with men, this is impossible. With man, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We saw how in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus there in John chapter 3, in and of himself, man is unable, apart from the rebirth, apart from being born again, by God's sovereign activity, man is unable to see or even enter the kingdom of God. How can you enter a kingdom that you can't see or perceive, understand? You can't understand these things unless you've been reborn. That's why he says you need to be born of God. And then he never gave him directions, if you notice the passage. He never says, okay, now here's how to be born again. Do this, 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 and that, and boom, you'll end up on the other side, born again. What does he say instead? The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound? You don't know where it comes from, but you can see its effects. You can see the trees moving. The wind blows where it wishes. And then he ends the whole thing by saying, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He comes upon whom he wills. And the effects of being blown upon by the Spirit of God Are you crying out to God for mercy and grace that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ? John 8, 43, 
teaches us that in our natural state, we cannot even bear to hear the truth of God's word. We can't. Perhaps a very strong one, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man is unable to receive the things of the Spirit of God. What are those things? They are the spiritual truths that he's talking about in the context. Man cannot understand the things of God. You can understand them at, at, at a surface level. You can understand that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can understand these things from a surface level, but to truly understand them and act upon them and relish them and appreciate them in the heart, the natural man cannot understand these things because these are spiritually discerned realities that can only be given by the Spirit of God opening the eyes and resulting in regeneration or the new birth. We saw in John 6.44 and in John 6.65 that no one is able to even come to Christ or believe upon him unless it's given to him by the Father. Very offensive passage to many people who want to hold to the fact that they did it all in the end. No, if you came to Christ, you were drawn to Christ. And they try to get around this by saying, well, he draws everybody. But that doesn't work because all who were drawn are raised up in glory in the end. So if, not, if, if we're not going to go the way of universalism, which the Bible strictly does not teach, there's going to be a heaven, there's going to be a hell, there's going to be a new Jerusalem, and there's going to be a lake of fire, and both will have plenty of inhabitants. The Bible does not teach that all will be saved. The Bible teaches that many will go down the broad path that leads to destruction but few will find that narrow path which leads to life. And those who find it, Jesus says, are few, are few. And if you were to come to Christ in faith and be raised up on the last day, it is the Father who must draw you. It is the Father who must grant it to you. Very, very offensive to the natural man. We saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one is even able to truly say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. We saw that a, a, a bad tree is unable to produce good fruit. I mean, going down to the very base level that even a child can understand, if the tree is a good tree, it's going to produce good fruit. If it's a diseased tree, a sick tree, a tree with rotting roots and disease infesting all the, all the branches and every part of the tree, it can't bear good fruit. It just can't happen. Jesus says you need to make the tree good, which is first the miracle of being given a new nature, the, the regenerating work of God, making a sinner new. He says you make the tree good and the tr fruit will be good. But you can't make yourself good. You can't even... There's nothing you can do that, that, that can make yourself good. And so what we see in all of this, all of these cannots, when we look at them in very clear language, that man is truly, utterly hopeless and helpless in and of himself. This demands divine intervention. If this is how bad and sorry we are coming from our mother's wombs, then something outside of us needs to come for us. Something outside of us needs to intervene on our behalf. You see, these points that we are studying, they all connect together. If we truly understand the biblical doctrine of total depravity, that man is utterly dead in sin, unable and unwilling to come to God, in this love affair with sin, then something has to happen if that sinner is to be saved outside of that sinner. And that someone is God. That thing is his sovereign choice to save sinners. Our hopeless condition, apart from grace, demands divine intervention. It demands God, as it were, stepping into the picture it demands a work of God's grace. It demands a work of a moving of God's merciful hand. It demands that God breathe upon these, 
This graveyard that we saw last week in Ezekiel chapter 37, it demands that God approach these bones and speak to them and cause his spirit to give them life. Because until he comes, those bones will continue to be, as the writer says, very dry. Very dry. This teaching regarding man's hopelessness forces us to look away from man depraved and dead and deceived and enslaved and condemned and impotent and helpless and hopeless. And it forces us to look to God, to God. Will he have mercy is the question. Will he demonstrate his grace? And the answer, thank God, is yes. Yes. And by the way, he did this before the ages began. I want you to note these two passages and what we're going to do after this is we're going to conclude in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Passage number 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, tells us this. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of him, because of his own purpose and grace. This is loaded with Glory. Did you hear this? He saved us and he called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. In other words, not because of anything we've done. But because of his own purpose and his own grace. I asked one of my sons yesterday, why did God save you? Why did he save us? The answer is, he had his own purpose. It's his own purpose. That's liberating. That's freeing to know that he didn't save me because of me. He saved me for his own glory, his own purpose. And unless we're set to make a name for ourselves, that's offensive. He saved us according to his own purpose and his own grace. The praise of his grace, as Ephesians 1 tells us. And notice this. This grace he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you know that? When did he give you this grace, believer? You who have turned from darkness to light, you have turned to Christ, you who have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, you know that he gave you grace before you were even born? He gave you this grace before your mom was born, before your grandma was born. He purposed to lavish this grace upon you before Genesis 1-1, before the ages began, before time began, before there was a sun to mark the days and the seasons, and before all of that, he lavished you, personally you, not just a group of people. He doesn't just save a group. He saves sinners. As we learn in John chapter 10, he calls them by name. He calls you by name. Elijah, come forth. Rosie, Come forth. He calls his sheep by name. And when did he purpose to do that? Before the ages began. That's when he determined to show his grace. Scripture number two, Titus chapter one, verses one and two. Paul beginning this little letter to Titus, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, listen, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. When did he promise his people eternal life? Before the ages began. And now I want you to turn, lastly, as we conclude this morning, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Again, we're just getting our feet wet this morning with this doctrine, this biblical teaching of election or God choosing a people for his glory. Beginning in chapter 1, Paul says in verse 1, Paul, 
called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. We just read in 2 Timothy of this grace given to us. When was this grace given to us? Before the ages began. Now Paul is thanking God for this grace that was given to these believers. And we know it was before time began. Verse 5 We also give thanks that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are lacking, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 10, he jumps to the problem that was occurring in this church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in, this, in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. This is before they had erasers, he says. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And notice how he begins to go into explaining the message of the gospel. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so Paul calls these opposers. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Did you catch that? And man, in all of his collective wisdom, still cannot find God or know God. Demands divine intervention, as we're saying this morning. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the believer says, this is God's power. This is his wisdom. Whereas the unbeliever says, this is meaningless. Let's go get a burrito. This means nothing. This is nothing. The believer says, this is amazing that God would save us that he would send his son for us? It's a difference, right? There's two people here. One hears the message and says, what does this mean? This is folly, folly, foolishness. The other says, this is glorious. Why? What's the difference? One has been called by the sovereign grace of God while the other is left in their sin. That's, that's the difference. Now, notice Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And now here's what I want to call your attention to, verse 26 through the end. He says, for consider your calling. 
In other words, this issue of why is it that some respond and some don't? It's because of the God who calls. Look at this. For consider your calling. Now, let's stop right there. Because a lot of people will try to get around this by saying, well, this is a calling to service. This is a calling to serve God in different capacities. What is the calling we have seen so far in this whole chapter? Being called, verse 9, into the fellowship of his son. Being called to salvation. This is a salvation matter. This is a salvation issue. And notice what he says. Consider your calling. Which is another way of saying, another way of saying consider the way you were called into salvation. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Paul had no desire to appease the crowds. Not many of you were wise in this congregation or this one here, right? According to worldly standards, he says, secondly, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But notice verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. How many times did he say it? God chose, God chose, God chose. And now he tells us why, verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He does the choosing so that no one can do the boasting. No one can do any boasting. No boasting. He eliminates all boasting. Why? How? By him doing the choosing. Left to themselves in our wisdom, we couldn't even find God a few verses up. So of course he had to do the choosing. Because if we did the choosing, or any amount of it, we would also do the boasting. And granted, you might say, well, I would never boast. Yeah, but the room is there for you to boast. And God has designed it in such a way where he doesn't even leave you room to boast, even if you wanted to boast on your bad day, walking in the flesh. You can't do it, because it was all him. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Very simple language, right? Because of him. Because of God. Why are we in Christ? Why can I, as your pastor, conclude my emails with in Christ, comma, new line, Justin? That's how I type it out when it's dictating. Why can I say in Christ, Justin? Because God put me in Christ. When? Before the ages began, when he gave me this grace. We're going to see in the coming weeks that not only did he give us this grace before the ages began, but this is a story of triune love. What we're going to see is that God just didn't give you grace before the ages began. He gave you to his son to be his sheep, to be his flock, to be his church, to be his bride. And so sometimes we can talk about these truths at such a high level and we can just callously say, well, God chooses who's going to be saved and, and who's not. God chooses, God chooses, not realizing the intimacy of it all, the beauty of it all, the love behind it all, that God didn't just callously choose a people. He said, my son, here's a multitude of people and they are yours. I'm giving them as a gift to you. You will go into the world. You will seek and find this bride. You will call her from the ends of the earth. You will collectively assemble her and by your blood she will be purified and sanctified and washed from her filth, washed from her stains. She'll be declared right in, in, in your sight. You will take her filthy rags and you will give her your righteous robe and you will bring her in and we will celebrate for all eternity. That's what this is, folks. That's what this is. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, and because of him, or literally in the Greek, of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's just another way of saying Jesus is our everything. 
When we think of God's divine wisdom to save and reconcile sinners, how does he do it? By his wisdom. Who is his wisdom? Christ. He is our, our righteousness. Why are we going to be able to stand before the throne of God one day and not have to fear his judgment as believers? Because Christ is our righteousness. We can say to the Father, don't look at me. I have no righteousness of my own. Father, don't look at me. The one at your right hand, he is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. When God sees you today, he looks at Christ as your righteousness and can treat you, even though you've never lived a righteous day in your life, believer, he can look at you as perfectly righteous because you are in his son. How are you in his son? Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. That is our holiness. And he is our redemption. And just in case any of these people missed it or any of the people here missed it or any of the people since the time this was written missed it, verse 31 again, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We are called to be boasters, friends. We are called to make disciples in the Great Commission by going forth from these this room and boasting loudly, humbly boasting in him. Not in ourselves, not in what we did, not in what our wills accomplished, not in how wise we were, not in how we made a good choice, not in how we made a good decision. We are to go and boast and say, I just want to tell you of all that God has accomplished through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and coming return of his son. Let me tell you about it. He's done all the work. Christianity is not go, do, 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 do. Christianity says it is finished. Look to him. Look to Christ. That's the good news. That's why we preach the good news from this pulpit. The good news is not, I got a bunch of rules for you guys to follow this week. If you want to earn God's favor, the good news is that Christ has earned God's favor by his perfect life, by his perfect death. He has earned our salvation by his triumphant resurrection on the third day. And now he offers this to you. And you can say with that last hymn we sung, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And if you do that, and you find yourself on that day at the marriage supper of Christ, there with all the saints washed in white, it will be very, very evident then, as it is now, that you are only there because of his grace choosing you to be there so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. Not to us, not to us, but to his name, give glory. Psalm 115. Verse 1. Let's stand.